Well, church, it's an honor to be with you this morning. I'm excited after a time of uh, Advent that we get to jump into our study, back into our study in Paul's letter to the church at Ephesus this morning. So just in case you're wondering, and you may not have, but I'm one of those guys that does wonder about such things. I completed my, Gabe will appreciate this, I completed my preaching schedule for 2024 this past week, and so um, I'm confident, or fairly confident, that we will complete the book of Ephesians in early July. So, um, so just in case anybody was wondering, Marlon, so, and that'll give us an opportunity to spend some time, obviously, um, on Palm Sunday and and Easter, and also we'll go through our core commitments in the spring, but I'm confident we'll be here till about July, so, but I'm also confident because it's the Word of God that it'll be fruitful for us during this time. So if you have your Bible, and I hope that you do, turn with me to the book of Ephesians. And we're still in Ephesians chapter 1. We're going to be looking at verses 15 through 21 today. Ephesians 1, verses 15 through 21. Starting in verse 15. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love towards all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Him. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope in which He has called you. What are the riches of His glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe, according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age but also in the one to come. Let me pray for us. Holy Father, we love you. We praise you in the name of Jesus today. Lord, what a gift that the Word of God is to us, Lord. So, Lord, today we proclaim that your Word is, is without error. And it is the foundation in which we're sanctified, as Jesus said, Lord. And so today I ask that above all things that, um, that your Word would uh, penetrate the hardest heart this morning. That the Word of God this morning would lift up those who are hurting and are struggling that your word this morning, Lord, through the ministry of your spirit, Lord, would sanctify us. Sanctify us in its truth. Father, I do ask that um, any opinion that I may give today would be quickly forgotten, but the word of God would stand and stand forever. We love you. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. So as I was studying this text this week, I kept thinking about something. So the question is, like, if you could hear the Apostle Paul praying for you, what do you think he would be asking? 
You know what you ask God about yourself and about others. But what would Paul ask on your behalf if he went to the Lord in prayer? And a more personal question is this. Would his prayer on your behalf be the same as what you ask for yourself? The answer to this question is where we're going to land today. But remember, at this point, up to verse 14, Paul has really focused on the glorious blessing, right? That is ours in Christ. But today, starting in verse 15, there's a shift. There's a a clear shift in Paul's focus. His gaze moves away from the blessings and more on a specific prayer he has for the church at Ephesus. And if you look with me, the essence of his prayer is found in, in verse 17. There he prays, he says, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him. His prayer is remarkable, for it displays what what Paul believes is at the heart of a follower of Christ, growing in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus. So in our text today, we see Paul praying for his brothers and sisters in Ephesus. And we talked about this when we opened this letter, the deep commitment, the deep love that he has for this church. So many relationships. But Paul prays in confidence to walk with Christ because of their faith in Christ. As I read this, I kept thinking to myself, Paul is writing with great confidence to one simple fact. And he's writing with confidence to the simple fact that they are, in fact, Christians, right? Which is something that we know that we should not always safely assume. But Paul is writing with great confidence that they are, in fact, Christians or followers of Jesus. So the question came to me, how does Paul know that the, church, the members of the church at Ephesus are, in fact, Christians? What's amazing in our text today, I believe, is a crystal clear assurance of their faith. Crystal clear assurance of their faith in Christ. And for us, perhaps it's also a test of our faith as well. Look at verse 15 and 16. He says, For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love towards all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks to you, remembering you in my prayers. Do you see it? Do you see the assurance there in verse 15? Paul gives us two vital signs of of the life of a Christian. One, their faith in the Lord Jesus. And two, their love towards all the saints. Right? So faith in the Lord Jesus is one. It's, it's, a, it's a fingerprint of, of a follower of Christ. And two is their love towards all the saints. Faith 
and works. Faith and love. Their faith comes first, but it's really important that we understand their faith is not a dead faith. In James 2, James addresses this very thing, starting in verse 14. He says, What good is it, my brothers, if anyone says he has a faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed or lacking in daily food, and one of you says to him, Go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving him the things for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. Our faith, our, our love for the saints is in response to what Jesus has accomplished. This faith they walk in is not a so-called faith or a dead faith or a faith that we battle in this country at nauseum that is only built on intellectual belief. Intellectual belief is not a faith. Having the head knowledge of something is not the same as being transformed and believing in it. Now this faith that Paul speaks into is a faith that has changed the church at Ephesus. It has transformed them because it overflows with love towards the saints, as verse 15 says. So the first thing that Paul, that Paul looked for to determine if they follow Christ is not an overtly moral or respectable lifestyle, right? Because many times for us, those are the fruit that we look for, right? When we begin to look for people that may be our future friends or people we want to, spend, we want to have our family spend with them, we begin to look at the way that they live, right? So we become more concerned with how moral they are, how upright and respectable they are. Do they talk well? Do they know a lot about religion? It is also not that they, that they, we want them to talk like they have some belief in God. Like it, it doesn't take long to have conversations with people and they will begin to talk about God in an impersonal matter. And many times they do it because they don't want to talk directly about if they do in fact have a relationship with that God. And so these are the things in our culture that we're drawn to many times rather than the beauty of the love for the saints. But this idea, this misdirection, this misunderstanding of what it means to be a follower of Christ is no different than many of the other cults and religions out there. Because the, re the reality for many people, whether they are Muslims or Mormons, or Jews, or pagans. They all believe in some type of a God. But they don't know Christ. And they don't understand the fruit of walking with Him. So the vital test or fruit of whether you are a Christian is do you have a faith in the Lord Jesus? 
And the mark of whether he is at the center of your life. For the church at Ephesus, for, in Paul's writing, Jesus is their alpha and their omega. He's their beginning and their end. He is the one they go to and trust for eternal life. He's also the one that they place their faith and hope in. Now, how carefully Paul speaks of Jesus here, and I love that. Look at verse 15 again. He says, For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love towards all the saints. It's really important when you study these writings by the Apostle Paul that you you carefully look at the titles he gives for Jesus. So notice here he speaks of Jesus here as the Lord Jesus. We talked in November when we, when we started this study. Over the course of those first 14 verses, there's many, many titles that Paul gives for the Lord Jesus. He calls him Christ Jesus. He calls him Lord Jesus. He calls him the Beloved. Right? Each time he names him, he's deliberate in his choice of the title. But here he speaks of their faith in the Lord Jesus. The sort of faith that he He thanks God for the faith and the one who is both Lord and man. That we just celebrated the Advent season for. Our focus during Advent was in the incarnation, right? And so this this title that the Apostle Paul gives about their faith and their love for the saints is one in the understanding that Jesus is both God and he's man. In the context of this day, this is really, really important to understand. Because many who knew of Jesus only knew him as a carpenter from Nazareth. Some saw him as a prophet. Some just saw him as just a good man, right? But the church sees further. We recognize him as the eternal son of God, as God himself, Come in the flesh, the eternal word, the Lord of hosts, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. That is Christ Jesus. We as the church, we recognize him as the only true God. Born of a virgin, nailed to a cross. The church, the faith in which Paul commends him on, proclaims this truth, church. And your faith should proclaim that truth as well. The God the Father sent his Son to be pierced for our transgressions. That is the proclamation of our faith. Is that the proclamation of yours? But for Paul, there's more. It's more than just a so-called faith, right? He looks first at the faith, but how that faith works itself out. How does our faith prove to be genuine? In love. In love. In love towards the saints. In love towards 
your brothers and sisters in Christ. You know, one of the things that's really, really funny, and I've noticed it for years, so it's not just here, but like, it makes some of you really, really uncomfortable when I look at you face to face, especially some of you men, and tell you I love you. Like, you don't know how to handle that. And there's lots of reasons for that. But the truth of it is, because of the work of Christ, my response to you as a saint of Christ is that I love you. Do you understand? I love you. And that should be your affection towards me as well. We see the church as family. This means that the mark of a follower of Christ is someone who is loved towards, this is where this gets really hard, all the saints, right? Capital A, capital L, capital L. All the saints. Not just those who look the same as you. Not just those who act the same as you. The word all means all the saints. This crosses cultural politics, right? But for many of us, we describe who we hang out with on whether or not they watch CNN or Fox News. This crosses all ethnicity borders, right? It crosses to the ends of the earth. As believers, there is a familial, familial bond of affection because we are born again. It goes deeper than all things the enemy tries to divide us with. True faith is a living faith. It will show itself in great love for one another. So after seeing the vital signs of a Christian, Paul prays specifically for them. And I love, I love this. Verses 17 through 19, he says, That the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Him. Having the, hearts, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope in which He has called you. What are the riches of His glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of His power towards us who believe? According to the working of his great might. Do you see here what Paul prays? This is, this is important and will guide you and I on how we can pray for each other and others who follow Christ. I want you to think about this. How do you pray for those who have been blessed in Christ? with every spiritual blessing. That's what he said, right, in verses 1 through 14, right? They've been blessed in every spiritual blessing. So how do you go before the Lord and pray for those who have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places? How do you pray for those who have everything? Because church, see me with this. Because you do in Christ. You're granted everything in Him. How do you pray for those who have been chosen in Him before the foundation of the world? 
How do you pray for someone who has been predestined for adoption to sons and daughters? How do you pray for someone who is blessed in the beloved? Redeemed by his blood, sealed with the spirit, obtained an inheritance. How do you pray for your brothers and sisters in Christ who have so much in him? What else do they, what else do we need? Verse 17, Paul answers that. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the what? Say it with me. Knowledge of Him. Say it again. Knowledge of Him. And with that, church, Paul just dropped a bombshell. Why? Because we tend to assume when you become a Christian, the rest of your life is just discipleship, right? You learn to walk in the right way, and this is true. But that's not what Paul prays for here. He prays for knowledge. The knowledge of God is what Paul prays for for these young believers in Ephesus. He wants them to share in the glorious mountaintop perspective that he has. As Paul sees it here, many of the troubles that they will face Many of the troubles that you and I will face, that we will face in the Christian life, simply, truly, at a basic level, comes from a lack of knowledge. We don't have a sufficient, God-centered, gospel-shaped perspective on things. Without that perspective... Our faith is stunted. Our Christian lives are stunted. We struggle to rejoice always, don't we? How many of you do? I do. We struggle to rejoice always. Which we would have if we had the knowledge Paul is praying for. And so we worry like the rest of the world, right? Like from a, uh, from a standpoint of like anxiousness and fear, we look just like the world. And this fear makes us forget how blessed and cared for we are by our Heavenly Father. And so Paul, his central prayer is that they may grow in what? Their knowledge of God. You see, church, the Christian life is not primarily about a lifestyle change. It is primarily about knowing God. And this will work itself out in a change of living. Do you see this? To know And to grow in Him, to enjoy Him, is what we are saved for. Let me say that again. To know and grow in Him, to enjoy Him, is what we're saved for. In the high priestly prayer in John chapter 17, verse 3, Jesus prays, 
And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. That is eternal life. Knowing him is the secret of how we can change to be like him. Knowing him is a secret of how we change to be like him. You can't walk in him if you don't know him. Intimately know him. We don't grow in holiness by just doing the right thing and running the moral treadmill. Did you know that? Because our culture tells us the very different thing. You cannot grow in holiness by doing the right thing and running the moral treadmill. That does not equate to holiness, church. No, there is more to our walk. We must grow to know him more daily. I'm reminded of Paul's words to the church at Corinth. In 2 Corinthians 3, he says, And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Church, it's about beholding Him. It's about knowing Him that truly changes us. Remember Moses in the story of the Exodus when he reflected on the glory of the Lord as he conversed with him? I, I love that picture. We are primarily transformed in his image by beholding him and by knowing him. Did you notice there how Paul describes this Jesus in which he wants us to know more deeply? In verse 17. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, comma, the Father of glory. The Father of glory. He asked us to give us a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Him. The Father of glory. Think about that title. The Father we are called to know here is not a boring God from our imagination or some cartoon. We must understand that. I'm amazed sometimes that boredom even comes up in the conversation of the walk with Christ. He is a father. He is so full of life, so full of grace, righteousness, holiness, that he generates glory from it. Think about that. He is an overflowing fountain of glory. Paul wants us to know not just the blessing of, of being redeemed. He wants us to know the Redeemer. That is the highest and purest pursuit for us as the saints of God. You understand that, right? To know him more and more and more and more every day. To grow in him. Back to Moses there in Exodus 33 at Mount Sinai. 
He had seen all the mighty acts of God in delivering the people from Egypt, right? He had eaten, I mean, think about this. We, we overlooked this because we've heard so many times in Sunday school. He had eaten bread from heaven. Think about that. Like, he didn't go down to King Supers. He had eaten bread from heaven. And he was on his way to deliver his people to a land flowing with milk and honey. Think about that. I mean, think about the perspective that Moses had in that. But Moses said this. He said, Lord, if your presence does not go with us, do not lead us up from here. So they're going to the promised land that their forefathers had told them about. They're going to the place that's going to be, that's going to provide all the fruit, all the, all the, all the sustenance that they will ever need as God's people. But Moses understood the most important part. It wasn't the provision. It was the presence. Moses had eaten the bread, really. I mean, he had conversed with God, right? He had eaten bread from heaven. He was on his way to deliver his people to the land that they all so desired. But he says in Exodus 33, Lord, if your presence does not go with us, do not lead us up from here. Do you have that same perspective? That God, I'm not going anywhere until you go with me. I tell high school kids this all the time and young college kids. It's like when you're selecting your next job, when you're selecting your, your, where you're going to go to college, find your church first. Find a church that teaches the scriptures and then go find a college. Like, don't do it secondhand. Don't go, oh, I'm going to put out and I'm, I'm going to be a mechanical engineer and I'm going to put my resume all over the country and hopefully when I get there, there's a church for me. It's backwards. It's backwards worldly thinking. Go where God is. Go with God. And that's what Moses was displaying there. That the highest and purest pursuit for us as the saints of God is to know him more and more and to grow in him. And Moses says, if your presence does not go with us, do not lead us up from here. Because Moses would rather be with God than in the, present, than in the promised land without him. Think about that statement. In a world where we're just pursuing ourselves and a, a bigger income and, and status and a new home and all those type of things, is that your perspective in making decisions? That, Lord, I would rather stay here because you are here than go somewhere that you may not be. That's a different perspective. It's a different perspective than what the world teaches us, but is what... God has called us to be. And that's the prayer that Paul has for the church at Ephesus. In, in Exodus 33, Moses presses it even further. Lord, show me your glory. How different is that from what so many Christians who think they have already arrived 
Because for Moses, he had seen so many things, right? And what's he still begging of God? God, show me more. Show me your glory. I want to know more of you. I want to be with more of you. For most of us, we would say, he had done enough, right? He had witnessed enough. But what does he want? He wants more. He wants more of God. Lord, show me your glory. How different is it for us when we somehow think that we've arrived? Who think that maybe you've learned everything that has to do with the Christian walk? I know for some, maybe you understand a little bit of doctrine, right? Maybe you can explain the importance of the cross. You can explain the importance of who Christ is. But for many of us, we think that that's all we need to know. If we know a basic understanding of this, that's good enough. And while that, while that, that probably offends you at some level, like, it's important to understand we've all been at that point, right? We've all been in that season where we're like, yeah, I get it. I've got it. I'm going to walk. I'm going to do my own thing, right? But this understanding, this misconception that's found within our churches is what creates boredom, right? It's what creates Christians to go and try to do their own thing is because they're bored with the basics. Because they don't seek to know God more and more and more every day. And so because of that, we move on. We move on to our own interest. We move on to the interest that the world may have for us. Because we have checked the box. Right? We checked the box of eternal life. I remember back in the 80s, my old preacher growing up in in Bible school, right? You got your fire insurance. As if that's enough. There's more church. There's more to walking with Christ. There's more to growing in Him. There doesn't come a point where you know it all. Brothers and sisters, this is a, this is a tough question. But I want you to really, I want you to write it down. I want you to think about it. I want you to answer it at another time. Is your spiritual knowledge, your knowledge of God, is it greater, is it richer, is it deeper than it was one year ago? When you think about your walk, when you think about your knowledge of Him, when you think about your relationship with Him, is it greater, is it richer, is it deeper than it was one year ago? Or have you grown content that you know enough? Hear me clearly, church. To be complacent in your knowledge of God is a misunderstanding of who God is. Look at verse 18. Man, this is good. I may go here. I'll be here all day. Verse 18. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. 
What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? As I said, to be complacent of the knowledge of God is a misunderstanding of who God is. The knowledge of God is having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, right? Church, this is more than just an intellectual knowledge. It's more. It's deeper. This is not just an acceptance of truth. Because the scriptures tell us that demons have that basic knowledge. And it causes them to shudder. No, this is a wondering, this is an adoring kind of knowledge. The opposite of this type of knowledge is not just mere ignorance, it's hatred. It is a mind that is hostile to God and His ways. That's the opposite of what this is. In Hebrews chapter 3, verse 12, it says, Take care, brothers, lest there be, any, be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. For this knowledge of God requires more, but not less than just our minds. Just as unbelief flows from a hostile heart that is an averse or it's against the truth, just as faith flows from a heart that has been turned and transformed to a to hear, to adore. Do you adore God? Ask yourself that quietly to yourself. Do I adore God? Do I adore Christ Jesus? To cherish and adore Him, this takes place when our hearts have been enlightened to understand. To see his beauty, his wonderful beauty. How could we desire anything else? This Jesus we have been called to know is not merely a formula to figure out. And that was really hard for me as a young believer. I have a very much of a math analytical mind. And I just wanted to figure out all the things I needed to do, right? But there's more. It's not, church, an intellectual pursuit. He is the truth. He is the Father of glory. <clears throat> he is the one who is so holy, so glorious, that when people in the Scriptures encounter Him, they fall on their face. I love this quote Jonathan Edwards wrote about about this God, the Father of glory. It says, God is arrayed with an infinite brightness, a brightness that does not create pain as the light of the sun pains the eyes to behold it, but rather fills with excess of joy and delight. Indeed, no man can see God and live because the sight of such glory would overpower nature. Tis because the joy and the pleasure in beholding would be too strong for our frail nature. Edward saw as Paul saw. He saw the hope that is only found in Jesus. And that is in the glory of God. The abundance of God. 
that the joy and the pleasure of beholding him would be the complete pursuit of all of your days. Nothing else, nothing else, church. Everything else lives within that pursuit. The pursuit of his glory, the pursuit of his abundance, the pursuit of the hope that is found in him, that it might be the pursuit of your lives. And that's why Exodus 33, Moses cries, Lord, show me your glory. Show me more. This is why Paul prays this way. Is this knowledge the desire of your heart today? This week, I was deeply convicted while studying this text. This idea of the pursuit of knowing God more deeply. In fact, one of the commentators that I was reading posed this question. and I don't know why I read those commentaries. They just frustrate me sometimes. But he wrote in the commentary, he says, Are you able to pray to God for one solid hour? And he said, if not, he asked, why not? You don't have a problem speaking with your friends for hours on end, right? So why do we find it so difficult to speak to God for an hour? Church, I'm convinced that is because we don't know him well enough. If that is you right now, I want you to pray with Paul. I want you to pray that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him having the eyes of your hearts enlightened. I wonder what it would look like for our church if each of you prayed that prayer every day. Does this message make you feel a little deflated? Because it did for me. But I'm convinced that the glory of God has that effect sometimes. We are humbled in light of his glory. In light of his glory, we begin to realize what a true mess we really are, right? Because the reality is we all drug a big old bag of trash in here, right? Like we don't want to admit it. Some of y'all's trash smells a lot better. Some of it's all doctored up and looks nice. But we're all dragging a big old bag of trash in here that is our mess. That's the beauty of the church, right? Like we don't come in here perfect, We're humbled in the light of his glory. So if you feel a little deflated today, yes, I do sometimes feel like I have some desire outside of God's glory. But our brokenness, our pride, our self-confidence in ourselves, our sinfulness is exposed in this truth. It's exposed. This makes us feel as if we don't belong there, right? So when you hear this sermon, you're like, this is not where I belong, obviously. So we shrink back from God and his presence. Well, church, there's good news, right? That's the beauty of this. There is good news. 
Paul is writing to address that discouragement, that very discouragement. He's reminding them of their identity, right? Verses 1 through 14 are full of their identity. And Paul is reminding them of that. Even on the days when we shrink back, even on the days we feel deflated, even on the days we feel discouraged, look at the part, second part of verse 18. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope in which he has called you. What are the riches of the glorious inheritance in the saints? That you may know what is the hope. Remember this, church. Did you pass the test earlier? Do you have faith in the Lord Jesus? Does your faith show itself in your love for the saints? If the answer is yes, then hear me really clear. Then know the hope in which he called you. Know the immeasurable greatness of his power towards you. And you may be thinking, what power? You may be thinking, when I look to my left and I look to my right, yeah, I can see God's power in the lives of this individual or, or that individual, but not really me. There are people in this room that I look at, it looks like they've got it all together, right? But can God really take someone like me and display his power? Do you ever have that question to yourself? Can God really take someone like me and display his power? Someone so frail, someone stumbling, someone so sinful, someone so spiritually messed up. Many times I think we say we're beyond help. Look at verses 19 and 20 as we land this plane. And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe? According to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places. Church, don't let the enemy put lies in your head. The power that he exercises towards you is the same power that he worked in Christ in raising him from the dead. Do you realize that? That's a daily promise. And there's more. Look at verse 21. Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age but also in the age to come. Seated you in heavenly places far above all rule, authority, and power. What Paul is wanting the church at Ephesus to see, and what I want you to see today, is that the power of God did not just resuscitate Jesus because he was listless from being tortured. No. The power of God raised Jesus from the dead. He was dead and now he is alive. And so today, he does not just want to just throw you a little bit of assistance so that you might try harder. No, the very fact is that if you have any faith at all, it is the first work of God. 
the God who raises from the dead. Just as he did not leave Jesus half resuscitated, he will not leave you, church. He is at work. Remember as we close today, your hope does not rely on your own strength, but in the immeasurable greatness of his power. Because of this truth, we're reminded that nothing is impossible for him. Because remember, salvation is all of him. And his power is working in us regardless of our stumbling, regardless of our struggle, regardless of our weakness. We must know, we must pray for each other that we know this. We must pray for each other that we grow in this knowledge. That is his power is infinitely greater in our weakness, right? If you see verse 21, there is no power that can withstand him. We're going to talk more about that next week. Every rule, every authority, every power and dominion, every name that is named, sin, death, hell, they're all subject to Christ Jesus. And all the immeasurable greatness of his divine power that raised Jesus from the dead is now weighted towards you. It's weighted towards you to keep you. It's weighted towards you to keep you in him for the hope to which he's called you. Let me pray for us.